I would like you to imagine just for a moment uh, that you have a relative, we'll say maybe a grandfather or something, and, and one day he sits you and, and your cousin down and he says, I am, I'm writing my will, and in this will, you're going to receive an inheritance. You say, okay, that sounds pretty good. And you kind of know that your grandfather's not too poor off, so you're pretty happy about that. You know, you're not looking forward to receiving it, but you are, you know. And you kind of go on. And then some time passes. And you're living kind of around and with your grandfather. You're maybe going into home and helping take care of things. And he decides that it becomes necessary that some rules are established about how the house is going to go. So he sets up some rules about what you're not supposed to do and some chores you're supposed to do. And, and if you mess it up, he even creates some rules about how you're supposed to make that up. And time goes by and you keep observing these rules. And at some point, you and your cousin kind of start getting into a competition. And you start thinking, well, I know my grandfather's inheritance is coming, so I'm going to work really hard. And I'm going to make sure... Uh, that I follow all the rules that he's laid out for us. And your cousin kind of does the same thing, but you notice over time that when you come to your grandfather's to help with some chores around there, that your cousin doesn't always uh, do the same thing. Sometimes he starts to help, but then he kind of bows out, and maybe he goes and plays cards with grandpa or, or watches a movie with him. And all of a sudden, you're doing all this hard work, and you're saying, well, you know what? I may be a little bit annoyed at my cousin. I might be a little frustrated that he's being kind of lazy and he's just doing this and I'm doing all the work, but I know an inheritance is coming. And I know that with these rules in place, I'm going to be the better for it. In fact, I probably expect that when my grandfather passes, I'm going to receive more, maybe even all of the inheritance, and my cousin's going to receive nothing. Well, then one day, your grandfather passes. The lawyer comes around and says, okay, well, pull out the will. And you know what? Nothing changed. It's the same will that he made all those years ago before all these rules came about. And you get your inheritance and your cousin gets his. And you think, now how can that be fair? I, I follow the rules better. Well, the problem is the will wasn't determined by the rules that came later. The inheritance and the will were always determined by the promise your grandfather made all those years ago. And so this morning as we look to Galatians chapter 3, and we deal with the topics of the law and the promise, I think what we'll see is that God had promised good news from long before the law came about, and that all of this law did not change the promise that had come before. I think this morning that we'll see that the law doesn't last forever, but God's promises to his Messiah do. So we look here in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, and we're going to see in these few verses here at the beginning that God establishes his covenant family through his promise of a Messiah, not through the law. So God is going to establish his covenant family through his promise of a Messiah, of a Christ, not through the law. In verse 15, Paul writes, "...to give a human example, brothers..." Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, what he's saying is, let's, let's take this out of the theological and biblical example for a moment. Let's talk about just 
in normal everyday life. So when you make a covenant, when you make maybe a contract or a will, once it's been made, nobody adds to it or takes away from it. If they did that, it would cease to be the, co- the contract or the covenant that was made from the beginning. So that's not going to work. So, so obviously you see in life that if, that if a covenant is established by men, it has to be kept the way it is, or else it becomes a whole new thing. The, the original is broken and it's replaced or something like that. So, so no one adds or, to it or takes away from it. So then he goes to the God-given covenant. In verse 16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is so important. Paul, now a follower of Jesus, looks back to God's promises in the Old Testament. His, his old covenant promises, his, his promises given to Abraham. And he says, now that I'm looking at this, now that I know who Jesus is, it's making a little bit more sense. Because if you go back to these promises, you see that sometimes it uses the plural, offsprings, or a more literal translation, seeds, or descendants. But Paul notices that here it says offspring, singular, descendant, singular. And this is so important for Paul's argument because, again, he's writing to the Galatian churches where there are false teachers trying to divide people. They're trying to divide those who are ethnically Jewish Christians and ethnically Gentile Christians. They're trying to divide them. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The descendants of God, those who are truly in God's family, are one family. There's not multiple families. There's one family. And how is it defined? Through Christ. It is said here in verse 16, and to your offspring who is Christ. And he explains, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now, there's a few big words there, but simply put, he's just saying the law didn't come. The Mosaic covenant, the law of God, did not come for 430 years after God made these promises to Abraham. And what he's saying is just because it's newer doesn't make it better. Just because the Mosaic law came later doesn't mean it replaces or nullifies the previous promise. You know, there's something unique about God and his promises that are different than ours. I mean, just think for a moment. Have you ever broken a promise? Do you know anyone who's ever broken a promise? Has anyone broken a promise made to you? Of course. Yes. Maybe more than you'd like to admit. But that's not how it is with God. God always keeps his promises. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is consistent. His character is consistent. His word is consistent. And his promises are consistent. And so that means when God makes a promise, he's not going to turn around 430 years later and take it all back. And so Paul is telling them that this law that came later can't can't replace the promise that was made earlier. He says that in verse 18... For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now we've talked, uh, the last time we were looking at Galatians chapter 3, about how part of the argument was, who are the children of Abraham? 
That's because long, long ago, God had chose Abraham to be the father of many nations, to be the father of a specific chosen nation, Israel. And, and the argument became, well, if the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, are going to become a part of God's people, what do they have to do? What do they have to do to be in the family? What, are they, what do they have to do to be adopted into the family of Abraham? And here Paul is arguing that from the time that the promise was given to Abraham, it was always promised that all the nations would come in. We saw that earlier in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 8. It says, In you, referring to Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So from the beginning, God was making this promise that not only would Abraham, uh, not only would Israel be blessed through Abraham, but all the nations would be blessed through him and through his offspring, which is Christ. But here we also see that this inheritance promised from all the way back then is not replaced. The way of receiving this inheritance is not replaced by the law. And that was an issue here because the false teachers were telling the Gentile, the non-Jewish Galatians, you need to be circumcised and observe the law of God in order to be a part of God's family. Uh, there is literally a list of things for you to do, and depending on how you count them, there's 613 commandments back there in the Old Testament that you need to start obeying. But Paul is arguing that that's looking at things wrong, because God had already made a promise to Abraham, and if, if, if the inheritance... If the life God had promised, if the, the membership in the family God had promised, if the righteousness God had promised came through keeping the law, it would no longer be by promise. And so all of this stuff would stop making sense. Now, then Paul addresses kind of the elephant in the room, especially if, if you've been in these conversations. Because then the question is, why the law? Why was there a law? Now, the law for the Jewish people referred both to the commandments they were to obey. It also referred generally to the first five books in our Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I always get nervous when I list things like that from memory. Because I start to think as soon as I get something backwards, it's going to fail. I think the other day I said that, uh, briefly that like Numbers was the fifth book or something like that and got it wrong. And then you know, I got harassed by people later. So I always have a little bit of trepidation when I do things like that. But those are the first five books of our Bibles. They're also called the Law, the Hebrew, Torah. Maybe you've heard that before. They're also referred to as the books of Moses. Because not only is Moses a, a key character throughout them, but it's believed that he wrote much of what we have in the first five books of the Bible. Now the Law refers to that whole book, which is, is the commandments, but also the stories. It also refers specifically to the commandments. And here, we ask, okay, well, if we're, not, if we're not made righteous through the law, if we're not given a life with God through the law, what was the point of the law? And I know, maybe, just, maybe it's just me, but I, but I think many of you probably, if you've been in church very long, have asked that same question. What was the point of all that stuff? Why did they have to wait so long? God made these promises to Abraham. 430 years later, there's a law. They spent a bunch of time in Egypt during that time in slavery. 
Uh, years and years go by, there's kingdoms established and tore down, kingdoms established and tore down, people being taken into slavery, into exile, and it takes so long before Jesus even comes. What was the point of all that? Now, there are many functions that the law has, but here in Galatians, Paul's going to say this, that the law served a good, or served several good, but temporary purposes. Okay, so we see that in verse 19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Let's start just with that first phrase there. It was added because of transgressions. Now this probably means two things. One, it means that the people that the law was given to had sinned and disobeyed God. They had rebelled against God with their hearts and with their actions. They rebelled and disobeyed God with, with what they thought in their heads, with what they said, with their mouths, what they did, with their hands. And so, the law was added after those transgressions in order to clarify what they were doing wrong. And we see that pattern in the Old Testament, especially in the Torah, the law, the first five books. They sin, they get more law. They sin, they get more law. So that's, that's one thing that that might mean. But the word transgressions is unique. It doesn't just, it, it does mean sin, but it's a little bit more than that. Because the word transgression, when Paul uses it in his books, the, the letters that he wrote, he only refers to two different things. He talks about transgressions as breaking the law that God gives in the first five books and the action of Adam and Eve sinning against God. See, the reality is that when Adam and Eve, the first humans, sinned against God, disobeyed God, heard his word and ignored it, they brought sin into the world, such that every human being since then has been born into sin. As Paul writes in Ephesians, they are children of wrath. They, they are children of the devil, as the scripture says elsewhere. So being born into sin, we by nature are sinful. We by nature transgress God's law. And, and if we look at Romans chapter 7, we see clarification that the transgression that Paul's talking about is to clarify that not only have we sinned, not only have we made little mistakes, but we have broken God's law. He spoke what power we're supposed to live, and we have ignored it. We have disobeyed it. Maybe, maybe it'd be better to put it like this. How many of you, go ahead and raise your hand, have been bowling before? Okay? If you have ever gone bowling, okay, most people. Now keep your hand up if you think you're good at bowling. Okay, like two people. Okay. I thought that might be the case. I'm surprised there's two people who will claim that they're good at bowling. But I'm, I'm glad to know that maybe some people are. Now, if you're good at bowling, you can ignore this. But if you're bad at bowling, let me give you some advice. If you go to a bowling alley, uh, they have these things called bumpers. And, and all you have to do, because you know when you bowl, you roll the ball, and, and if it goes off to the side, it'll get in the gutter, and you're not going to be able to knock down any pins at the end. Okay? And the goal is to knock down all the pins, and as quickly as possible. Now, if you're not good at bowling, it's pretty easy. Have them put the bumpers up. These little rails... And all of a sudden, when the ball's about to go into the gutter and you're not going to get any points, it'll just bounce off and keep going. And it'll bounce and bounce and bounce until it gets to the end and knocks down the pins like you're supposed to in the beginning. That's a good thing. 
Now, again, the, the goal of the game still isn't to just hit the bumper as many times as possible. The goal is to knock down the pins at the end. But the bumper kind of helps. Well, there's a sense in which the law functions as a bumper in a bowling alley. It, it keeps God's people on the path that he has for them. It clarifies what that path is. It points out to them, if you, if you go into the gutter, you're not going into a good place. And when they did sin, they had sacrifices they could make in order to be not necessarily counted as righteous, not necessarily just to be completely forgiven permanently, but to be temporarily brought back in to God's family and to God's people. They were considered clean then, and they could go to the temple, and they could worship, and they could be around their peers. So the law functions kind of like bumpers in a bowling alley, keeping people on the straight path leading to the goal. Maybe that doesn't help entirely. Maybe you can think of this. Maybe the law in this way functions as a sort of guardrails. So when you go uh, driving down the highway, especially around here, uh, and you go driving in the mountains, and you're kind of taking these turns kind of sharply because you almost have to in order to keep driving, and you'll see that every now and then there's drop-offs, right, off the highway. Now, sometimes, most of the time, they'll have guardrails set up. And if you don't know, the purpose of the guardrail isn't to go, oh, there's a guardrail there, I should hit it. Uh, that's not the purpose of the guardrail. It's actually the exact opposite. The guardrail says, hey, if you drive that way, it's going to be bad. But the guardrail kind of protects you. Now, you're still going to do a lot of damage to your car. You, you probably won't have a car that is running after you hit a guardrail, especially if you're driving on the highway. But it does keep you from going off the edge. Because if you go off the edge, your chances of surviving, your chances of, of walking away from that accident with, without huge uh, uh, bruises or, or difficulty... All of those are more difficult if there's not a guardrail there. But hitting the guardrail, you might get hurt, but it's not going to be as bad as if you go off the edge. The law kind of functions like a guardrail. It keeps us from going off the edge. And when we do hit it, we're not hurt as badly as we would be if we just went off. Because I don't know about you, but when I am tempted to sin, I don't always think of it on my own as badly as it is. It's pretty easy for us to justify in our own minds that, you know, well, if I look at this, if I say this, if I do this, it's not going to be that bad. If I say that to this person, it'll relieve some stress that I'm feeling. If, if I act this certain way, if I think this certain thought, it won't be that bad. That's kind of like driving in the mountains when it's all foggy. <laughs> we, we see... We, see the, we don't see the edge. We, don't, we, just, we just see the, barely the road in front of us. And so it's pretty easy to say, maybe I'll just drive off to the side and, and get a good view and go on for a little hike. And then all of a sudden, you're falling off the mountain because you couldn't see. The guardrail shows us where the edge is. It shows us where we're not supposed to go. And when we go there, it gives us the opportunity, like the law does, to get back in, on the right path. To, to perform the sacrifice, to be a part of it, to get back on the right path. Now, this was temporary. See, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, that it was until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law wasn't supposed to be a permanent reality of our world. It was temporary. 
It was meant for a set time. It was meant until Christ comes, the Messiah comes, the promised one comes, the one promised to Abraham, his offspring. The law was only meant to serve until Christ came. And when he is here, it no longer serves that purpose. What, what is good about Christ coming is not only do we have real permanent forgiveness for our sins, real permanent reconciliation with God, what's good about Christ coming is he sends his spirit to dwell in us. And all of a sudden, it becomes a lot easier to drive, okay, when you have a little bit of assistance. It becomes a whole lot easier to drive when the fog isn't making everything hard to see. And so the law functions to keep God's people on the right path, to serve as a guardrail or a bumper. Now, he wants to clarify how temporary this law is, how imperfect it is. It's good, but it's not perfect. Because it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go read when the law is first given at Mount Sinai, now, maybe you haven't read the book of Exodus, but maybe you've seen the Charlton Heston movie, Exodus, maybe. And you can, you can remember at Mount Sinai when he comes down with the tablets and there's these Ten Commandments. Okay, by the way, movies aren't the best way to get your Bible knowledge, just to make that clear, okay? Go read Exodus 20, okay? But there, God gives the Ten Commandments, the first commandments of the law. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, it does not mention angels. It mentions like, like all this thunder and storm and all this, but it doesn't mention angels. What's going on there? Well, there is a tradition in the, in the Jewish community that God gave the law through angels as, as kind of this go-between. And you might think, well, that's a really odd thing. That's really strange. It's weird that Paul mentions it, but is it really that important? Uh, two things. One, it's not entirely important, but it's not just Paul that mentions it, actually. Uh, so if, you want, if you're taking notes and you want to go look at this later, you can look at Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Or you can look at Hebrews 2, 2, which talk about these angels giving the law, God using angels. Now, I think part of the reason we have a hard time with this is because as Americans uh, in 2023, our, our views about angels are so messed up. When I was a kid, there was a, t a movie, talking about movies again, called Angels in the Outfield, okay? You know, I'm not thoroughly convinced that any of that is very helpful for understanding what the Bible says about angels at all. I, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that baseball teams are being like, I mean, maybe, maybe, Glenn, you think the Braves have angels in the outfield. I don't know. Based on how they're playing this season, it might be the case. But that's, you know, our ideas about angels are so mistaken, and, and the way the early church looked at it, and the way the Bible speaks about it, is angels are a very common way that God works. He works through these spiritual beings. And, and I don't think we know a whole lot about it. I don't think we should focus a whole lot about it. Um, in fact, in Colossians, it talks about people worshiping angels. We don't want to get into that situation, okay? So we shouldn't focus all our attention on angels, but we shouldn't be surprised when it talks about angels being used to do the work of God. That shouldn't surprise us. Now, it wasn't just through angels, it was by an intermediary. Now, this is Moses. Moses, the one given law and then brings it to Israel. Now, in verse 20, it says, Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, that verse makes almost no sense why he says it at all. 
unless you go and, and get a little help from Romans. And I don't think this is something you should always do with Galatians, but sometimes things get explained a bit more in Romans. In Romans chapter 3, verse 29 through 30, Paul is making this argument. He said, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul's argument is, since God is one, he wants one family. Since God is one, he doesn't want a bunch of people uh, of different groups. He wants one family united under him. And this intermediary, bringing Moses into the picture, complicates things. It, It actually makes more than one family, because it makes a family that observes the law, a family that is circumcised. But there's all these other people that God has promised to bless who are uncircumcised. And how is he going to bless them? Not through the law, but through the promise, through faith. Now, uh, let's look at another way that the law is good, even though it's temporary. In Romans, sorry, in Galatians, here in verse 21, Paul writes, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now we need to first see that in verse 21, Paul denies that the law is is in competition with the promises of God. God gave the promise, he also gave the law. He may have done it through angels, and he may have done it by an intermediary, Moses, but he still gave it. So Paul is trying to make sense of these things. He is certainly not. They're not in contradiction. But he clarifies, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that you have mistaken your understanding of the law from the beginning. When you thought the law could bring life and righteousness, you just got it wrong. It just wasn't meant to do that. It, it, would, be, it would be like just taking something. It would be like taking a straw and trying to eat your like, soup with it. Okay? I mean, I guess you could do that depending on what kind of soup it is. Uh, but it's not a spoon. Okay? It, that's not its purpose. It would be missing the point. Paul is saying that you are missing the point with the law. It wasn't meant to do what you're trying to get it to do. And so, it can't replace the promise. It wasn't meant to do that. If it could do that, surely we would have it. But it doesn't. You're just missing the point. But here's what it does do. He says, The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. There's an element for which if we're going to understand the good news of Jesus, if we're going to understand that Jesus is a Savior who saves us from our sin, what do we need to know? We need to know the bad news that we are sinners. I don't know about you, but it's hard to convince someone that they need a Savior when they don't, or that they need Jesus as their Savior when they don't think they need a Savior at all, when they, when they don't recognize that they're a sinner at all. And there are many people 
I think in our culture, in our, in our world today, in our community, in our country, who just simply don't believe they're sinners. Now, they may think they make a lot of mistakes or that they're not perfect, but this idea of sinner, this idea of disobeying God just doesn't exist. And so, Paul is writing that the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. What he's saying is that the law functioned, because God wanted it to, in a way to reveal our sin. In this way, it kind of is like a bathroom mirror, okay? It's like a mirror that we look into, and we can see, we can see something in ourselves we didn't see before. If you go, go read the Ten Commandments, and tell me that you've never broken one of them, and then go read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and see how Jesus speaks about ethics in his kingdom, and then tell me that you haven't broken one of them, Right? The Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not murder. That's probably the one that all of us go, that's easy enough. Maybe not all of us, but most of us. And, and if you've broken that one on the face of it, you probably shouldn't tell anyone at the moment. But Jesus says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, everyone who's ever been angry with their brother has murdered in their heart. The law exposes how broken and how sinful we are and how much we need a Savior. It was important that the Jewish people could see the depth of their sinfulness so that when the Messiah came, they could understand why they need him. Now, the problem is they didn't always understand that. It it strikes me as interesting Uh, that in Matthew chapter 3, it talks about Jesus being named uh, Jesus. Actually, it might be Matthew chapter 2 now that I say that. That he's named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus meaning God saves. He's named God saves because he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. The problem was many Jewish people at the time didn't think they needed to be saved from their own sins. They thought they needed to be saved from the Romans, from sinners, from the tax collectors and prostitutes and all these people outside of us. But the message of of Jesus, the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel is that the thing that you need most is not salvation from a bad boss, not salvation from a nagging wife or a lazy husband. It's not salvation from a a, a dumpy apartment or, or a falling apart house. It's not salvation from a car that just won't stop breaking down. It's not salvation from armies that are threatening you, what you need salvation from most of all is your own sinful heart. That's the message of the gospel, that Jesus has come not to just save us from all the stuff outside of us, but that he has come to save us from ourselves. And the law functioned to hold up a mirror to us and say, you might think you're good, but you just simply are a sinner. And each one of us has to look upon that and say, yes, I am, and I need a Savior. And if you're not willing to admit your own sin, you'll never understand your need for a Savior. You know, Jesus says that the one who is forgiven more loves more. We need to understand the depth of how much God has forgiven each and every one of us. It doesn't matter how, how immoral our sin seems to other people. We each need, like Paul, to be able to look upon ourselves and say, 
I am the chief of sinners. The fact that Jesus saved me is beyond my imagination. And when we get there, I, th I think we can get much farther in our relationship with God. So the, the law reveals the depth of human sin and the reality that the sins that we commit were also transgressions against a holy God. Now here's one more way that the law is a good but temporary thing. Look at verses 24 and 25. It says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now the word translated guardian here is translated in the King James Version as a schoolmaster. I don't know how helpful that is for us. It's translated uh, by Eugene Peterson as a Greek tutor. I think that gets a little bit closer to what Paul was saying. I actually like Tom Wright's translation. And so I'm going to say that the law is like a babysitter. The law is like a babysitter. It's there to protect you. It's there to make sure you don't get the knives out and play with them while mom and dad are gone. It's there to make sure that you have everything you need. It's there to function and serve you. But the point is to get you to the destination that you're meant to go. And so the law, like a babysitter, like a Greek tutor, is meant to keep the people focused on the destination and help them get there. The law is uh, very good at directing our attention to the fact that we are unclean and sinful people who are trying to reach a holy and sinless God. And so the law functions in this way of keeping us on the right path, of making sure that we're not getting into things that we shouldn't be, of making sure that we're not getting into idolatry. Now, to be clear, the law couldn't, the law like wasn't a person who could swat your hand, okay? The Jewish people clearly got in, themselves into trouble. They clearly disobeyed the law. They clearly worshiped idols. They clearly worshiped false gods. That's all true, but the law stood there to condemn them for it. It stood there to make sure that they understood what they were doing was wrong, and God sent prophets to clarify that. He sent teachers. He sent leaders to clarify those things. Most importantly, he sent Jesus. And there's a sense in which Paul is saying, yeah, the law was your babysitter. It took care of you, it changed your diaper, it swaddled you, it did all of that. But aren't you all grown-ups now? Aren't you ready to be adults? To, to be a little bit more mature than that? Why would you go back to having a babysitter dictating your life? Aren't you ready for a little bit of freedom? A little bit of responsibility. The Galatians were tempted by these false teachers to go back to the law. Really to go back to infancy. To go back to a life of dependency on the law. The problem is, it wasn't going to get them very far. As long as they depended on the law, they were going to stay with the law. But it wasn't meant to be a permanent solution. It was meant to be temporary. It was meant to be in place until Christ came. Until mom and dad got home from their date. And now we're able to be in the family of God. Yet the Galatians are tempted to go back to the law. To go back to bumper rails instead of a real game of bowling. 
to, to go back to, 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 to just the mirror instead of the real genuine thing they can see face to face. To go back to a babysitter when they could have their father. Not just Abraham, but God himself. And we see Paul concludes with just this wonderful passage in verses 26 through 29, giving them a vision for what life looks like beyond the law. What life looks like if you live according to God's promises, not to just these commandments. And it's a vision for how we, anyone, Jew, Gentile, can become full inheritance receiving children of God through faith in Christ, not through doing and keeping and observing the law, but through faith, trusting in Christ. He says in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. There is no greater joy that we have than to fully trust and believe that through the work of Christ, we are children of God. That, that we have a father who is greater than any earthly father you could have. If you had a, a, a bad father, you, you might struggle with this idea of God as father. But we look to scripture and we see that, that, that God being father is far greater than anything we could imagine. If you had a good father, he doesn't even compare to the greatness of God. As God's children, we inherit everything that he promised. God gives to Christ a full inheritance. And Christ, if we are in Christ, we are his offspring, and we receive that full inheritance too. Every bit of it. It's this picture of being children of God, not, not because we keep the works of the law, not because people can say, look, they, they don't eat. A non-kosher food and, and, and they do certain things and they live a certain way. It's not just that. It's just simply through faith in Christ. It is through faith that although we have transgressed the law, Christ, who never disobeyed God's word, never sinned, went to the cross and took the full burden of our punishment upon himself so that if we believe in him, we can trust in his death and his resurrection being raised from the dead defeating sin and death themselves. Simply trusting in that promise. And just like how I started out with that story of you and your cousin competing for the inheritance, we can get in our heads that we don't deserve something we can't earn or that we didn't earn. We can get in our heads that we need to do something in order to get what God promised. But the whole point is that he promises what he's going to do. He promises to send Christ. 
He promises to bring a people to himself through Christ. He promises these things. And yet we go, okay, but how do I get that? What am I supposed to do? What do you want me to do? You want me to walk down an aisle? You want me to pray? You want me to sign something? Do I need to pay someone out the door? Like, what do you want me to do? And the message of Scripture is just believe the promise of God. Believe it so much that you live like it's true. There's no one you have to tip on your way out. Okay? There's, there's no one you have to meet up at the front. It's not saying any of those things are bad. I would love for you to tip me on your way out. It's just simply saying that God isn't giving us a system for which we earn our salvation. God is saying the system, any system that exists was never meant to do that. Don't turn the good law into a system that will lead you to sin and death. But look at the law and see God's faithfulness to you and see that Jesus has come and redeemed you, that he has come and fulfilled the law so that you might have life. And listen, this is not a message that is for a specific kind of person. He says it is neither for the Jew nor the Greek. There is neither in Christ slave nor free. There is no male and female. Now, Paul's not denying these realities. In his day, there are people in the church who were still Jews and still Greek. In fact, there are some who were still slaves and some who were free. And yes, there was about there were some that were male and there were some that were female. He's not denying those distinctions. He's saying none of them are going to get you closer to God. None of them are going to get you the inheritance you want. And, and maybe Paul is thinking of the prayer uh, that some pagans prayed. Lord, thank you that I am a Greek. Lord, thank you that I am not a slave. Lord, thank you that I am not a woman. That was a real prayer. Maybe Paul is thinking that people have so loved these distinctions, so loved their own unique identities that they are not willing to put on Christ the way they ought to. Listen, nothing about your identity before your baptism, before you were baptized into Christ, nothing about that identity gets you closer to God. It is only through faith and receiving Christ that you aren't just closer to God, you're as close as you're going to get. Let's pray.